Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with Yuri Klarman, co-founder of BlocksRoute. We had a really fun conversation chatting about why networks are fascinating and what it means to look at the problem of blockchain scalability from a networking angle versus a cypherpunk angle. We talk about BlocksRoute's Layer Zero Valley proposition as the internet of blockchains and the advantages they have working with the top 20 Ethereum mining pools. For all of the DeFi traders out there, learn how you can take advantage of BlocksRoute's networking infrastructure for arbitrage and liquidation opportunities. Yuria also gives us a sneak peek at a new project that is currently under wraps called Project Eagle. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Yuri, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Leslie. Yuri, you come from an academic background. Um, You're an interdisciplinary networks researcher. And really much of your work from what I've seen combines all sorts of fields from computer networks to something called content distribution networks to security. And I really want to set the tone for this podcast with you because really you are unlike any other guest I've had given your strong academic focus prior to founding BlocksRoute. So we'd really like to start by asking you, you know, a very broad but also personal question, which is why are networks so fascinating to you? So first of all, I'll take oh, you're different from everybody else as a compliment. Different is good. So I have like a PhD in computer networks and specifically blockchain networks. And the cool thing about networks is that if you go and talk with crypto people, technical crypto people, you know, whether these are like core devs and whatnot, they will tell you, listen, the blockchain is a peer-to-peer network. And if they have a whiteboard, they'll start like making circles. You see, these are nodes and connect them with lines and they speak with one another, et cetera, et cetera. And That works generally, but if you look more closely, these lines connecting the dots, how they communicate with one another, is actually the thing that matters the most, right? What's the difference between your computer, which can do trillions and trillions of transactions per second, doing all sorts of calculations, and the Ethereum network? What's the difference? The Ethereum network is decentralized, right? What does that mean? It means a lot of computers are sitting, they're doing these calculations, and they need to speak with one another. So the main difference is the distance between them, these communication between them. So these lines on like lines on the whiteboard end up being something super, super interesting. It ends up being affecting stuff like scalability, the thing that we started with. It even affects like DeFi traders. We'll touch on that like in, in a bit. Why does it matter? Like and people who are familiar with you know, high-frequency trading will, will have a hunch for it fairly quickly. But it matters a lot for so many things because it's really the main difference. So I don't know. Um, I always think of OG crypto people. You know, the crypto movement kind of came from cypherpunk, which are cool people. They have like, 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 they know about cryptographic stuff way better than me. But sometimes it feels like every problem they see, like, you know, when you have a hammer, then every problem is a nail or something. They're going, oh, I have an issue. Well, let's create a new like protocol, secure protocol that can like solve it. 
what are you guys talking about? It's like, so, so coming with a different background, A, networking are very interesting, just the way they work. But B, coming to the crypto space with, with networking background is super fun. Whether you, when you speak with Vitalik or when you speak, you come up with ideas and it's not like I'm a smart person. I'm not the smartest person out there, but I have a different perspective. So you can kind of come with cool ideas and crazy ideas and stuff that didn't think about earlier just because you have a different background. So that's very interesting. What are conversations with Vitalik like? Because certainly I've never spoken to him before. You know, he is this sort of mystical crypto god that we have in the industry. You know, I don't even know what I would say if, if I ever met him in person. But yeah, what are those conversations like with him? So like, I hope he doesn't listen to it or if he listens, he don't take offense. So he's very nice. He's very humble. He's very nice. He's very open to speaking with people. And it's kind of like, he's, he is very, very nice. But I guess in order to come up with something like Ethereum, which is really novel, cool idea, mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to be also kind of nerdy weird, right? He, he is kind of weird. He is kind of awkward. So I go and I speak with him and we have great conversations. Oh, what do you think about this? Oh, here are your thoughts. Well, what about that? I think we should be doing this. Great. Well, me and you had a small, a short chat just before we started the, the recording. Well, you know, you can just talk about stuff and it's very convenient and easy. I think not last time I met Vitalik, the time before that was probably like I saw him early in 2020, just before COVID hit in Stanford. But before that, we met in New York and we had like an hour just for ourselves. I wanted his opinion about some of the things that we're doing. And we had a great conversation and we talked about, it. we just walked like in, in Manhattan and, and then we finished the conversation. And then on the one hand, I still have Vitalik here. I should be using this time to do something, right? It's kind of like, I, I should be taking advantage of the opportunity. On the other hand, we already discussed all the stuff I wanted. And now it was kind of like, I'm not sure what are we supposed to do now? So I ended up kind of like saying, well, I actually have some people I need to meet up with. Is it okay that I'll ditch you and I'll go meet with them? And I'm kind of like, am I, am I, am I ditching behind Vitalik? Is, that, is this a stupid move? And again, he's super nice. I like him. I think he's a good person, which is not one of the same as nice. I think very highly of him, but still every time the interaction with him are kind of weird. There's something weird with, with, in, a, in a cute, great way, but still kind of weird. You should have just ended the conversation with, so Ethereum, huh? Thoughts about that? <laughs> I kind of did. And then we had like a three sentences about that. And then I think we walked and we met, we met Nick Tomeno from One Confirmation. He was just walking the other way. And my little girl was born not too long ahead of that. And he has a, a little girl who was born pretty much like a week, a week before, a week after or something like that. So, oh, how are you doing? How are things? And, kind of, <laughs> and then I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I'm kind of here with Vitalik. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with him now. Anyway, so that's that. these are my two cents about Vitalik. But again, I think very highly of him. This is not to insult him in any way. The nice thing about crypto, like go to all the conferences, go to all the big things. You can see everybody. I was in Bitcoin 2020, and I think I met like Eric Voorhees, uh, like from from Shapeshift, who I I am very fond of. I think very highly of. And he was just like, you know, I think um, Josie Bellini. Um, she's like a crypto artist. He was just buying stuff from her or something. And he's like, you know, one of the people walking around there. And the same you can see. Pr pr pretty much, I think the only one that didn't felt like a normal person was uh, Jihan Wu when I, I met him like once a very long time. 
And that felt like, you know, he had an entourage. And other than him, <laughs> every single crypto person, yeah, you can just meet him at the, you know, the after party or whatnot kind of thing. Like you, you just see them around. It's everybody are very normal, accessible. It's kind of, it's a nice thing about the crypto industry, I think. Was it challenging switching from being a purely academic researcher with your co-founder to building a startup full-time? A, it was a major shift. The way it went down, me and Alex, uh, Professor Kuzmanovich, then my advisor, my now my co-founder, we were working on my research. And from my research on blockchain networks and the network layer of the blockchain, we figured out we have a way to scale blockchain. Between you and me, it's not even that complicated. So nowadays you'll hear about very complicated solutions, like the Lightning Network, obviously, mm -hmm. which is super convoluted, but ZK rollups and optimistic rollups and a billion other stuff. But we can, no, no, guys, you're looking at from the wrong, again, looking at from this cypherpunk angle rather than from the networking angle. But before we'll get into that and what Blockstart is and how it solves the scalability problem, et cetera, we sat down and we kind of, well, we can do this thing. It's a network. It helps blocks propagate much, much faster, even if they're very, very large. And so networks can process a lot of transactions. Like two years ago, we were able to make Bitcoin process 3,000 transactions per second. It's very achievable. We can do this. It's already in deployment, in, in production, et cetera. But once we thought about the technological stuff, we also said, well, we can build, build a business around it. And if we just capture a tiny, tiny fraction of the value that we create, right? If we capture just 10% of a cent, and now we're talking about capturing like 500 times more than that because we have like better use cases in, in DeFi. But the numbers are just like mind boggling. When there are a lot of transactions per second, we're talking like billions of dollars per year. And then me and Alex sat in the office and we said, well, this isn't a million dollar idea. This is a billion dollar idea. We can't not do it. This is just too do good not to do. And so we went up to the startup path and, you know, we licensed all the patents from our research, et cetera, et cetera, created the blocks route, the BDN. Again, we'll talk about that. And my third co-founder, Eyal, who's our COO, which, you know, he's actually somebody who knows how to run a company and run a great team, et cetera. So he, he, he has experience from past startups. Moving to that front, A, it was a major change, but it's a fun change. It's fun going and talking with people and explaining the idea and thinking about new solutions, et cetera. And it's even more fun for me because a lot of the hard stuff, like managing, you know, managing the development team. I can do that. I'm just not sure I'll be the best person to do it. So, well, somebody else is doing it. Ayal is doing that. He's, he knows how to make a budget. He knows to plan ahead and say, well, like whether that's timeline, whether that's like having backup plans, et cetera. So a lot about of, of, of the switch is great. It's just like, it's fun. It's interesting. It's exciting. I get to do stuff that I like and enjoy and like get super pumped about it every day. The downside is that it's also a bit exhausting. This is like 24, seven, all the time. You're in the shower. You're thinking about, well, we could do this or that. Then you go and you do the dishes and you're still thinking, well, there's also that other. It turns out to be the thing that you do all the time. It's not, it's not like on the clock. It's the weekend. It doesn't matter. You have stuff that you want to do. So that's the hard part. I was very geared to go to be a professor. You play with cool ideas and then you throw them away and move to the next <laughs> cool idea. And this isn't it. This is like, okay, you do something and you make it work and you, you hit the roadblocks. The one 
joint thing between academia and startups is you come up with an idea and you try to do it and it never, ever works. Nothing ever, ever works. You hit a roadblock. And like, well, how do, you, how do you solve it? And this is true in both cases. Like in academia, you try to make a paper, you try to make an idea and you thought it, will work, it would work, but it doesn't. So you do something, you adjust. Well, we don't do this, we do this. And kind of like you make a few, you repeat this process 20 times and you have a paper about something completely different, but still like, okay, you created something and this is how the process. And the same thing with startups, the same like nothing ever works. So you fix it and now it's half working. Okay, but now you have to fix this. And, and there is no climax. There isn't the point. Okay, you turn the key and the entire thing network. No, this is a very gradual process where you do one small thing after the other. And eventually you can say, oh, what do you know? We have like this giant company and we have revenues and we have all these kinds of stuff. But again, there is no climate. Like, oh my God, we did it. No, no, we did it a million times along the way. Every time just another step along the way. So that's the experience for me, at least. That's definitely very interesting. So I think now would be a great time to transition more into talking about Blocks Route. And as you mentioned earlier, Blocks Route is a blockchain distribution network on a mission to solve the problem of blockchain scalability. Why does scalability matter? Why is scalability more important now than ever? Okay, so let's talk about this, about scalability and why it matters. And then kind of like, then we'll jump back into what is it that we do and why that matters. So I noticed you had an interesting conversation a few episodes ago with a few of the uh, Bitcoin Cash people, the BCH people about their hard fork and how things turned out there. And I have a very warm spot in my heart to the BCH to the to the BCH community. Like I know a lot of people there, and I agree with them a lot in terms that blockchains and cryptocurrency weren't just made to be a store of value, right? Bitcoin had had this giant argument: should this just be a thing that you hold and you never use, or can it be both? Can you also use it and send it and work at scale? Now, at scales means thousands and thousands of transactions per second. Like thousands is, is the easy thing. We can actually do that um, um, nowadays. But if you're thinking, oh, think of Ethereum coming, programmable money, all the things you could do with that. So think DeFi, like DeFi will eat any amount, uh, any volume of transaction that you would give it. So um, who was it? Maybe it was Eric Voorhees who said it, but I'm, I'm blanking. Who, who was it that said, Think about how letters have evolved into emails and then to text messaging and then to chats and telegram and chatbots. Okay, chatbots, you're texting with somebody and that person isn't real. You know he's not real, but you're still chatting with him. It's a crazy concept when you think about it. So all that, if you go a hundred years ago, it was letters. So if you told somebody a hundred years ago, oh, think about like people would write hundreds of letters each day, he would think, you're, nobody can even write hundreds of letters. There's not enough time in the day to do that. Definitely not on the go. So the way letters evolved into all the messaging, emojis, whatnot kind of thing, crypto is now doing to transaction, right? Transaction nowadays means like pass your credit card and like, okay, you buy something or, or you give money and you get something in return. But now blockchain is kind of like maybe liking something on Twitter is a transaction. Maybe searching something on Google is a transaction, right? Open up a completely new domain of like business model instead of the web to, okay, we'll give these for free, but we'll 
collect your data and we'll sell that because we need to make money as well. What if, you know, platforms just collect a piece of the transaction that they facilitate? So Google give you all the searches. They don't need to sell your data because instead of that, they're benefiting. They're charging you tiny, tiny, tiny amounts that you're happy to pay on the searches that you do. Okay, so that's one option. If it's Facebook, that's about liking or tweeting or whatnot kind of thing. Add that, add, like, again, programmable money. This is like, we're talking DeFi and we'll be talking DeFi. So really think about like, if you have a tiny, tiny DEX, okay, you have a hundred people there and they're not doing full blown algo trading 5,000 transactions per second. No, no, they're doing each like one transaction per second. A tad of arbitrage versus the other exchanges. That tiny, tiny thing is a hundred transactions per second, right? This tiniest thing. Now, Binance has like 4 million traders, right? So just do the math yourself. So really the need for, for scalability and making transactions, et cetera, is something that exists. If crypto want to really make it big, then, then this is something that we need. So that was the argument back like in, like in Bitcoin between BCA to the big blockers and the small blockers. And the big blockers who, I am a big blocker. I thought these guys were right. The big blockers lost. Like, this is how I see it. I, I am sad that this is the outcome, but the Bitcoin community decided this is not what they want. Those who wanted more went ahead and created Bitcoin Cash. Ethereum, in the meantime, became such a powerhouse of activity and interaction, integration of the, the, like, the money pieces, the money Legos, right? Mm -hmm. Then nowadays you can even take Bitcoin, take the SOV put it on Ethereum and now you can actually use it. I'm sad to say that I think this kills the Bitcoin Cash dreams in terms, you have the usability, you have the store of value between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'm not sure there is a case for Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash is UTXO based and not account based like Ethereum. So it, it is more efficient in this way and that way, but that's, I don't think that's a strong enough argument. All that is to say that if you want to really for blockchains and crypto to make it big, they need to also facilitate transaction, right? Everything about programmable money and why it's cool. So you, your foot in the door is thousands of transactions per second, right? If, if, if you want substantial stuff, you need tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. This is what we come in order to, to enable. And this is a good place to stop and say, What's preventing blockchains from doing all of that? And usually here people throw all sorts of kind of like technical jargon. Oh, this will listen, the computational whatnot, whatnot. It's actually, it's very simple. It isn't a complicated explanation. So all our audience out there, you're getting the two minutes explainer on something that a lot of smart people are getting wrong. So listen closely. Here's how it's going. The way blockchains work, right, is that people make transactions, right? You create a transaction, you send it, it's, it's being propagated in the network, in the peer-to-peer -peer network. And then every so often, somebody in the network, a miner or a validator, doesn't matter if it's proof of work or proof of stake, take these transactions and create a new block from them, right? A block is just a long list of the transaction it includes. And a few fields, like a version and a timestamp and like the address of whoever's getting the reward. And again, miners and pools do that because this is how they make money, not because they're the nicest people out there. And the key to point out here for a second is that in order to create a new block, you must hear of the previous block, right? You can make a new block of transactions. 
if you didn't hear about the previous ones, because you don't know if these transactions are valid or not, if you didn't hear about the previous block, right? If there's a block there, like I sent you all my Ethereum. So my I can create a transaction trying to send Ethereum to somebody else, but it's invalid. It's not really, and, and so in order to create a block, you must know the previous block. And that requirement, which is, appears to be simple, right? You can't add a new one before you know what's going on, turns out to be the bottleneck. Because if you take a blockchain, doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter proof of work or proof of stake or, or, or the protocol or whatnot, all of them has the same idea. If you want that blockchain to do not much more, just a hundred times more transaction per second, okay? Then you need to make blocks which are a hundred times bigger because they include a hundred times more transactions. Now, if I am a miner or a validator, I created this giant block and I try to send it to you. It takes me a hundred times longer. Just send, this is where the networking comes in. Just sending it on the wire, it's 10 times bigger. It just takes time, 10 times longer. Mm -hmm. It takes 10 times longer to reach everybody in the network. That means that the time until the next block would be added also increases by 100x, right? So you could easily make 100 times larger blocks but you will have to space them out. They will have to come at a much reduced rate, a hundred times less frequent. And then you're at the back, back to square one. Great, you're doing a hundred times larger blocks, but a hundred times more slowly. And so, and this is the bottleneck, sending blocks fast around. It's not about processing a lot of, of like very large blocks. Your mm -hmm. computer can easily process thousands and tens of thousands of transactions per second, even if you bought it like for $400, $500 or something. It's not about storage because storage is like dirt cheap, that's first. And second, you're so resource constrained that you can't buy a few terabytes of data. No problem. Whoever said you need to store all the blocks since Genesis? You need to know what's the current state, right? Who has how much? And maybe the last five blocks or 10 blocks or a hundred blocks, like just to be on the safe side. But why is it helpful for you to store all the blocks since forever ago? It serves no purpose, especially if you're that resource constraint. And so this is what my research kind of like really outlined and became very apparent for us that the only bottleneck, the only problem is sending blocks fast. And so this is where blocks route comes into play. And for the audience, like we're called blocks route because we route blocks, right? We help mm -hmm. blocks propagate fast. And the way we do that is, again, for the people who were able to follow my explanation up until now, I hope that was simple. So what we do is also kind of simple. I said earlier that people make transactions, they propagate in the network, and then comes a block which contains them. So what we do is, it's called caching. It's, the idea is that we see all these transactions as they happen, and we just synchronize everybody saying, oh, here are new transactions, here are new transactions. So all these transactions hopping around, we make sure everybody here of all of them together. And what that help, why is that helpful? Because if everybody knows all the transactions, then if you, Leslie, are a miner and you mine a new block and you need to send it to your peer, usually you'll have to send, again, it's, a block is just a long list of all the transactions inside it. Instead of sending this giant massive block, you'll just send and say, oh, I have here transactions 5, 13, 47, 100. Just say which transactions are in there. This is almost infinitely smaller. And you could do some more sophisticated stuff. 
But basically, if you know everybody else know the same transaction, then if you tell me 5, 47, 103, I would know which transaction is transaction 5, 47, et cetera. So this is what we, this is the mission that we came with, right? The idea, it started with us just enabling scale. We can do that. Blockstrat is already in production. We're working with most top 20 pools in Ethereum. Really, every block out there that's being propagated is propagating using Blockstrat. So if you're using Ethereum right now, if you're using MetaMask, if you're using Infura, if you, everybody are hearing about blocks also through Blockstrat. I think the key, a key metric to our success is always, and this is getting slightly more technical, but there's something called uncle rate. How many of the blocks were propagating too slowly? So while they were being propagated, somebody else mined the block and got the reward and they were uncled or orphaned. And that number dropped by 35% in the past six months. Nothing had changed in the Ethereum protocol. Nothing had changed in the environment. The only thing that's changed is that we solved an issue with traffic going in and out of China. We are at historically low anchor rates, which we, we, we take credit for. Almost nobody cares. Almost nobody knows what that means. Again, nobody's not looking at the network. These are just the lines connecting the, the like who should care? But for people who are paying attention, if, if you look at 2017 with the boom and everybody trying to trade, like uncle rates were through the roof. Like it was like 10%, 15%, even higher. I can't remember the numbers from the top of my head. And now there's a giant, we had the DeFi summer. We have the current boom. We have this bull market. And there's no change to uncle rate. This has never happened before. Every time the uncle rate was very strongly correlated. Anyway, that's getting slightly too technical on the networking side, but this is what we do. And does that make sense up until now? I actually want to press you a little bit on that, that last point that you made, which is that you're able to cut the block propagation by 35% recently. How is it that nothing about the native blockchain layer actually changes? It's an excellent question. When you go to the website, okay, and whatever website, you, you, you go to Twitter because we all go to Twitter, then you get packets of data showing you like, okay, the information that you need in order to show you the website, etc. You have no idea, your computer, not only you as a user, your, it has no, no idea whether the packets went over copper wires or optic fibers or through a satellite connection, you have no idea and you don't care because the network layer is built in stacks. The only thing that your computer knows is that this is data coming from your router at home. Your router doesn't know that either. He only knows he's getting data for your address from other routers out there. So routers know other routers and connectors. Underneath that, there are five additional layers which each one is kind of like distinct from those on top of it. And this is intentional. This is how networking, this is how the internet is built intentionally. So these, you can switch components, you can upgrade them, you can improve them. And you know, you don't need to change your server or your app or whatnot because somebody changed some cable somewhere. All that is to say, we just made the internet for blockchains faster. Nobody needs to know about it. Nobody needs even to consent about it the same way like all the traffic to Japan goes through the wire that connected to mainland like Asia, which is partially owned by Google. This is how the data flows. It just the way it is. Nobody thinks like, oh, should, like 
am I happy with it? Should I try to, this is how you're connected to the rest of the world. This is your connection. You might have several which you can choose from, but the idea is that there is an infrastructure of the network underneath everything. And really the top layer, the blockchain layer doesn't even care about that. So we call ourselves layer zero. We're operating underneath the blockchain. So think about it as just like very fast fibers. And we're not in reality fast fibers. What we do is this caching, which I explained already. So we can compress blocks and decompress them on the other side and everything moves fast. And nowadays we pretty much propagate blocks close to the speed of light. Okay, like on average in like 140 milliseconds to reach everybody around the world. And so at this point, you can't get much faster. You can't get faster than speed of light. This is as fast as you get. What we can do, and this is the important piece, is make it bigger without making it slower, as I explained at the beginning. So, but th this is a bit more on the theoretical side of kind of like why we do and what we do, et cetera. So this is kind of like the quest. We don't know, this is the scalability. We do it because we think we will also capture value by enabling all these transactions. So today, Bloxout is very uniquely positioned. Nobody else in the world is working with top 20 pools in Ethereum. Like we spent two years on making the connection and helping them until they trusted us enough to try us out and then see if it works, et cetera, et cetera. So we work with them with a very simple proposition. We'll make your network faster. You'll hear about blocks faster. You make more money. Like the idea, we're trying to be the best partners for them. But that puts us in a very unique position. We see blocks faster than everybody else. We send transactions to other people faster than anybody else, which kind of like bring us to the business side, which I think maybe some of the audience would appreciate. So our value proposition is the following. I thought it would be fun to, to phrase it as a question. Let's say that I don't know, somebody made a giant trade on Uniswap or something like that. And all of a sudden there is an arbitrage opportunity, a giant one, or there's, I don't know, something is under collateralized and all of a sudden, if you sweep that, you make $2 million. There was a case of that like a, two, a week ago or something like that. And if you have two people in the world, two traders, one of them say, oh, I want this. I'll send a transaction. I'll pay a gas of 200 GWAY. And the other would say, well, I want this, I'll pay 201 G-Way. The question is, who would get this opportunity? Who, who would win and get like, like, like to capture the value there? And most people I think would say, well, obviously the person who paid more, right? 201 like beats 200 G-Way. So he paid a higher fee. So he would probably get the reward, right? It just makes sense. And if you, you can broaden it, okay, there are many, many, many people participating. But somebody is paying more than the others, so he's probably the one collecting the reward. And that turns out not to be true. That's not how things work. So the way things actually work is that in Ethereum, blocks don't come every 13 seconds. Okay, you need your transaction to be mined. Let's say this is a DEX opportunity, you're trying to capture it. You want your transaction to be mined in the next block. If you're not in the next block, that opportunity is probably gone, right? So it turns out that blocks in Ethereum don't come really every 13 seconds. They come on average every 13 seconds, but 8% of them come within a second and 15% come within two seconds. So between the time that opportunity was created, if you want to take advantage of it, 
you need to hear of the new block, okay, of this, like telling you there is an opportunity, and then you need to process it and say, oh, I want to make a trade. You create the transaction. Then you need to send that transaction and for your transaction to reach the mining pools. If it's not getting them, if they, they can't mine it, right? They get it, they create a new block template saying, oh, we should include that. And then they pass it to their miners, right? It could be that while they're doing that, one of their miners already mined a block. So you didn't make it in time. So if it takes you a second to hear about the block, participate, like, like process it and send your transaction for that to reach the pools and then the miners, you just missed on 8% of the possible trade. If it takes you two seconds, then you just missed 15%, et cetera. So this grows like with, with the long time. So if you're using, let's say Infura, then you're hearing about blocks six seconds after they are mined on average. You're missing 50% of the trade possibilities out there. It's like playing a video game, but you're not actually watching the video game. You're watching somebody recording it and then sending it to you. You're watching it in a delay, okay? You're playing, but oh, you're trying of like, <laughs> yeah, trying to jump and catch the gold or whatnot. That's going to be very hard when you're in such <laughs> delay. Um, um, Alchemy is doing better. I think they're like two seconds or so. Oh, no, no, the opposite. Alchemy is six seconds. Infura is something like two seconds. And we're like 0.1 seconds. So that's half of the equation until you hear about it. Then you need your processing. Well, that's your server or, or whatever, or you clicking on a button, et cetera. So that, that's kind of like on you. Um, but that's usually pretty fast. But then you need to send your transactions there. Again, you give it to us 100 milliseconds later, right? Or 150. So 0.1 seconds afterwards, it reach all the miners in the pools because we're connected to them. So you give it to us, we give it to them. If you send it through the network, it would take you usually something like um, 0.8 seconds. So not a full second, but close to that. So going back to the original question, is a person who paid 200 G-Way going to beat the person who paid the 200 G-Way? Most of the time, you know, half of the time, depending on how this is connected and that is connected. But if the person paying 200 G-Way is using blocks route, then in 30, 40% of the cases, he'll be taking advantage of others are just too slow to capture. You have to be quick to hear about it. You have to be quick about sending it. And if you don't have that, paying higher fees is not going to help you. You can pay the highest fee in the world. By the time it, you heard about it, by the time you sent it to the pool, the next block was already mined. I'm sorry, you missed the train. You could have paid a million dollar in fee. It wouldn't help at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I have a flood of questions, really. First question is, you talked about the, these sort of arbitrage opportunities that are very, very important to traders, no less DeFi traders. What are ways in which DeFi traders are missing out on trading opportunities right now because they aren't using Bloxroute? And then sort of as, as ancillary to that question, how does Bloxroute's networking infrastructure enable DeFi traders to become more profitable, right? And taking advantage of that speed that you talked about. So I'll start answering actually the second part and then go back to the first one. So speed is what we give, but really we, we're in a unique position where nobody else has a networking infrastructure connected to all the pools or most top 20 pools. So one of the things like we're offering is front running protection 
you want to make a trade, it's a big trade. And if you make it to just send a transaction, you're going to get front run and tailgated and whatnot, all the stuff that you crazy DeFi people do. And for me as a networking guy, it's kind of like, it takes me like a full day to figure out all these techniques. So we can offer you, you can send us a transaction and that transaction will give it to the pools. The pools would mine it, but they won't publish it to the general mempool, right? To the general network. So people won't see it in order to front run it. So um, Sparkpool has a similar thing. They have the, the, the Tai Chi network, but in terms of hash power, we have a lot more hash power working on us. So when you're making a trade, you want to make a trade, but you also want it to be mined fast. So it's great to get uh, like front running protection. Nobody sees it, but then you're sitting there and waiting and waiting for your node to mine it and, and it might take a while. Now I am very pro Sparkle. I think they're a great guy. It's not in order to criticize them, but because we have significantly more hash power participating in this program, then you can send us a transaction. It would be mined very, very fast. Now this doesn't prevent you from needing to pay the fee, right? You'll need to pay the fee in order to be included in the block, et cetera, but it would prevent others from front running your transaction. So this is one of the things, this isn't even about speed. This is just leveraging the fact that we're working with all the pools and nobody else is doing it. So that's one thing. A different thing is that the easiest thing is just connecting to us, right? You connect to Blockstop, you hear about BlocksFast, you send BlocksFast. But some of our traders, especially you crazy DeFi traders, what, pe what do people want more than most? They want to see the other transactions. They want to see what other people are trading so they can beat them. So we have a service. We just stream you all the transactions that are happening and are being sent. And so I think a lot of our customers find this to be one of the most valuable features that we have. You don't need to manage your node and trying to get from it. And then like you have a DevOps person, his sole job is to pat the node on the head and make sure the node doesn't break and it acts nicely. And instead of that, you have just, oh, we send you a stream of the transaction as fast as humanly possible to get it from all over the world. You're seeing all these transactions as they happen. So that's another thing that people find very valuable. Our largest customers actually say, you know, everybody knows Flash Voice, right? Because we also now have Flash Voice too, et cetera. So our largest customers, a lot of the time come and say, well, we offer to run a relay node just for them. So the way Blockstart is working, we have a lot of relay servers that we manage and we send and people connect to it, but we can create one that specifically for you. It sits right next to your infrastructure. So you're even faster. So you're not connected to the same one as others are. You're getting a, a few additional benefits. Some of them require, again, going back to the network layer, some of them are utilizing a private link going into China and out of China. Now I mentioned that this is the second time I mentioned it. A lot of the hash power is sitting in China and pools need to sit also close to where the miners are. So the pools could sit anywhere in the world, but when they hear about something, they need to send the job to the miners. And if that is far away, that's way more efficient for them and it costs them money. And so, you need to have the ability to send, really putting it bluntly, you need to be able to send stuff fast into China and hear stuff fast coming out of China. And so if you have 
you have mining happening in Europe, you have mining happening in North America, and you have mining happening in China. And they're kind of like very, very far away because of the great Chinese firewall. And so again, networking stuff. Um, so these are some, so we offer like a real, th these are some of the stuff that we offer. The value there is speed. The values are about seeing things before others see them, sending faster before others can send there. Um, and, and like, again, my, my example before that, if you're not fast, you're missing opportunities. I think you still have to beat everybody on, on fees, et cetera, et cetera. But if somebody else is paying higher fees, but isn't as fast as you, you have a chance. And in trading, it's all about chance, right? When you're doing a lot mm -hmm. like serious trading. So this is, a lot of this is about, oh, in 5% of the cases or 10% of the cases, you get it to reach an opportunity because a block is mined and then half a second later, another block is mined. So you got there and nobody else got there. So all the opportunity there are yours alone and nobody else managed to read it and hit it. So we kind of like unlock additional trading opportunities. So that's kind of like to the second part of your question. I have no idea at this point what was your first part of the question. Maybe you remember. <laughs> no, the first part was, do you know of certain trading opportunities that the average DeFi trader mm -hmm. is not able to take advantage of because they are lacking this element of speed? But again, there are other variables that you just mentioned, right? Are there just like blatant opportunities right now that these traders are missing? So we're actually, we wanted to do this, but we got sidetracked with, we have a few big things happening right now. So, so we haven't unleashed it to the world yet. But what I really wanted to do is that all the people out there using, let's say you're a day trader, right? You sit in front, in front of Uniswap and when the time seems about right, then you click the button. Mm -hmm. It goes back into my example about like, you're playing a video game, but you're seeing it in delay. So I actually, or let's say differently, when you're using the Uniswap website, then you're talking with some server and that server is actually hearing, like talking with some node or with Infura or Alchemy or something like that for another service. Um, Chainstack is also a good one. Actually, if you're using Chainstack, you're getting blocked out. Like we have a deal with them. They're kind of like um, like a channel sales for us. So they're also giving like blocks routes um, features. Um, but we, I really wanted to deploy like what it's like to use blocks route when trading on Uniswap. And then I could see how other people are seeing it in delay. And you're, it's as if you refresh faster. You're like, oh, here's a change. A new block, here are the new, the prices change every time a new block is mined, right? And you see it before others see them. It's that simple. And that is really for the average day trader who's looking and it could be Uniswap, it could be any of the other decentralized exchanges. So this is really, I wanted that piece. And I also wanted, like we're working on enabling MetaMask, which everybody are using, to do exactly like keep everything as is, but when you send a transaction, send it to Blocksroute. Also send it to the peer-to-peer, -peer. like that would also arrive there. So, you know, like, so nobody has to trust us that we'll send it or I don't know, censor it or something, but also send it to like, send it to Blocksroute. So these two pieces, like a MetaMask, which is connected to Blocksroute and, a Uniswap interface, which Hayden and the Uniswap team had been gracious enough and great enough, so it's open source. So 
to run that and see like, like this is really for like for the small day trader to benefit from. Um, I think these are the main things. A lot of what we do is more geared toward the the enterprise client, those who are running serious trading operations. Um, and some of the numbers there are like Amber is like like one of those in terms of the mind. Just the amount I'm I'm trying to think like just the amount you guys spend on fees like when when, when <laughs> like that must be quite a lot of money. So this is like obviously like this is where the big money has. This is you make a lot of money, you sell it. So the, this is where the interesting things happen. But it's also like we're trying to also you know be there for the small person or or the like like the, the small guy, um, just because it's fair. Like like why wouldn't we? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this point about gas fees. I know something that you guys have written about extensively, and I'm sure it's a core part of your discussions, especially when you're you know speaking with all these Ethereum pools, is the mempool, right? The memory pool. And and this is not my question. This is something that I, I saw in an article, and I would love to get your thoughts on, is how does mempool competition drive Ethereum's real-time gas fee marketplace? I think this question encompasses so many of the different <laughs> things that I'm trying to think about and understand because I am the average user who looks at the average GUI price and I'm like, I obviously want to click the lower one um, because I don't want to spend as much because it's already so big of a portion of my entire transaction. And you know, I'm coming at it from more or less this type of retail trading mindset, but you know, I want to understand, right? How does this gas fee marketplace even work? given all the different variables that, you know, you from a networking perspective understand, I would love just some context in terms of how these gas fees are even set in the first place. So, okay, let's talk about that. And then we actually like, I'll share a bit of something that we have like working under the hood and or kind of like, or, or not under, like under the cover still, but, but I'll, I'll share a few details on that. So basically, and pe people might've heard about like E1559 to help with that, but the problem is, is that if a lot of people try to participate and there's no, so it, goes, so it goes, first of all, it goes to scalability. A lot of people try to participate and there's no room for everybody. So everybody try to outbid one another. So you pay one GUA, I pay two GUA, somebody else pay three GUA, and, and until somebody wins. And what happens then is that the most valuable use cases. Okay, you trade a million dollars on this and on that, et cetera. Well, well you'll pay a hundred G-way and you won't like, or, or 400 G-way and it's fine. But if you're, you know, you're trading a hundred dollars, then that, that, like, that, that, that's prohibitively, right. prohibitively costly. And so what happens then is basically a good thing where the chain is used for the most valuable transactions. That, that piece kind of makes sense. The most valuable use cases get in and the others don't. However, it kind of sucks because me, you and me are the people who don't get in, but it is what it is, right? It's kind of like the, probably like Amber's transaction, you guys move large sums around, so you get in, but you, Leslie, your transaction is being screwed. I, I do the same thing, but like <laughs> same for Blockstrap. So the fees, it's, it's simple as that, right? There isn't enough room and people try to outbeat one another. The bigger the scalability, okay? The bigger the throughput that could go there, then instead of just keeping the super, super valuable transactions, you have room for the mediocre valuable 
and kind of valuable and i don't know it's funny cat video thing like whatnot kind of thing <laughs> so like you'll have room for less valuable transactions whatever these transactions are but still the most valuable ones will be included but still i don't know if you're just trying to do something ex you're just trying to send one transaction every second saying hi okay this is stupid it has no purpose it just waste gather you can do that but it will cost you so you probably won't be willing to pay 10 gway on that you might be willing to pay 0.1 gway on that because who cares right so that's kind of like the idea as you increase the scale there is room for more participants and so the less valuable transactions but what we're seeing these spikes in the in the fees which have two sources one defi trading flat and simple it's kind of like everybody are kind of okay paying like well i'm willing to pay 10 you're willing to pay 15 that guy was willing to pay 100 etc and all of a sudden oh no there's a super great opportunity i'll pay 100 i'll pay 200 i'll pay 300 all of a sudden <laughs> all the small people thrown out of the game it's kind of like, no 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 only the big numbers get in if you're not in the so, so everybody are kind of pushed toward the higher end otherwise your transaction isn't getting in anytime soon and it could crash really fast so it could go up and then it could go down etc so that's how fees are behaving. There is a proposal, um, it's called EAP 1559, and that's had a lot of discussion in the Ethereum community. Basically, to say it has all sorts of properties. Most people talk about the fact that instead of giving fees to the miners and the pools, they get burned, so it becomes deflationary. But that's just part of the story. That's the monetary, uh, monetary policy. The other side of the story is to say that Blocks can become bigger. So you have like a gas, it's called the gas target. That's how much room, but you can actually increase more transactions, add more transactions, as much as twice that amount. But when a block gets bigger, then these fees become higher in a predictable way. So again, if more people would like to participate, fees would go up, but instead of going crazy in all sorts of hard to work with ways, they're going to go very, very fast up in a way that you can predict how it's going to behave and then gradually go down, hopefully reaching an equilibrium where, again, people are willing to pay this amount, but not more than that, and the most valuable transactions are, are kept there. Um, so that's kind of how gas work generally and the gas wars, um, who was it? I like Dan Robinson's take on it. He, he did a, an episode with, um, what's your cool that or that podcast is called uncommon something um, uncommon core yeah uncommon core so yeah. he did that um, um and i like dan robinson generally speaking so it's it's always fun to to hear him um both researchers right yeah yeah we're kind of yeah. like on this like, like yes yeah. so <laughs> we, we, we like that we're on the same wavelength i guess um but he's working at paradigm and probably like a hundred times makes a hundred times more money than me um <laughs> The, the money aside though um you have these gas wars where what happens somebody is trying to make a trade and then somebody sees that and try to front run it so he pays a higher fee and then the first person oh i'll try to front, and everybody are trying to beat one another and that's kind of the cause of a lot of these like spikes in in the gas so that's kind of what exists out there today Nothing like E1559 might change the behavior, might make it more predictable, but it won't solve the fact that more people wanting to use the chain means higher fees. There's no way around it. Um, one of the things that we've been working on is that 
or this has a lot to do with the gas limit, okay? How, like the scalability of Ethereum, how big should it be? And you can see on Twitter or whatnot, long threads of Ethereum people kind of arguing, oh, it should be this, oh, it should be that. And at the end of the day, these discussions may mean very, very little because it is the pools that decide whether to increase or decrease that. And their incentives are slightly different. They actually prefer to have to capture more fees rather than have them go very, very down. So pools are trying very hard to be good citizens. Most pools trying to very hard to be good citizens. But in terms of incentives, their incentives aren't aligned with the ecosystem. So we're building, or we've been involved with building a, a coordination tool that allows the community to kind of like signal, oh, we want this to be, we're now at 12 and a half million gas. So that means how many gas in each block. How, it's really how, how big is each block. We're kind of like, oh, we want to signal that we want it to be at 15, right? Increasing the gas limit by 20% from 12 and a half to 15 translates into savings of something like $200 million per year in fees to the ecosystem. And that's just like part of the value. If Uniswap, if you increase the gas limit and you say, well, I assume Uniswap trades also increase by 20% if we make it big, I assume they keep the same proportion. It increases probably LP's fees by 20%. That's another like $180 million per year that LP, so, there are a lot of pros and value going around this topic of trying to optimize the gas to be as high as safely possible. So again, us being very connected to pools and miners and very aware of the scalability and what's stopping it. And really a lot of the stuff that most other people, no, no, we're, most people are looking from the top and we're looking from the bottom from the network there. So that's something that we've, we've been working on. And I hope like for people to hear much, much more about it in the coming month or so. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation so far, Yuri. As we wrap up here, I would love to give you the opportunity to talk about what's down the road for BlocksRoute. I would say that if you want to be in the know, right, this is like I have this thing that we work on is called Project Eagle. I will tell the audience that if they hear about Project Eagle, that they're very likely to hear in, in the very near future, well, they'll know who is it coming from. Okay, this is coming from us. We're very studious people. We've been around for a while. We build stuff that nobody else was able to build. So is this like a scam or a real thing? Is it like, well, is it a real thing that the serious people are working on or not? Does it, is it likely to, to work or not? This is the thing that I'm working on. So you can keep an eye open on that. Other than that, I think I mentioned already most of the stuff <laughs> in our conversation. Excellent. Look, I still have so many more questions than I'm sure our audience listening to this either are following you already. And guys, if you are, I highly recommend it. You know, go learn about Blocksprout and the partnerships that they have. They they are working closely with our own JV with Red Protocol called KeeperDAO. Mm -hmm. We've even written a post basically saying that Blocksprout 
of all the services that KeeperDAO has tested out, has performed the best consistently over, you know, this sort of testing period. So there are lots of information out there about what Bloxroute is building out. And it's it's no longer just theory, right? These are applications that we're seeing today helping not only Ethereum, but hopefully other blockchains as well down the line as Bloxroute are network agnostic, the layer zero for all. And that's what makes them very, very interesting and crucial to the growth of this ecosystem. So with that, Yuri, thanks so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. Look forward to seeing what you guys have to be building out and hope to bring you on again very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was great fun. I really appreciate it. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.